good time away to get some rest. I'm thankful for Pastor Dean Olive. What a faithful brother and a faithful minister. I know you were blessed by his preaching and teaching of the Word last week, and I'm thankful to to have him at the ready to come and serve when I'm away. Um, this morning, we will pick back up in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 will be in verses 1 and 2, and, and you'll recall, if you think back a few weeks, we've been looking at chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2, under this heading of a holy God, a sinful people, and a faithful Savior. And we come to the text today, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, to consider pursuing the faithful Savior. We see the faithfulness of Christ here, but we must also draw in this action of our pursuit of the Savior. These are some of the most glorious and far-reaching, all-encompassing verses of Scripture. These verses are packed with depth and glory. They're full of encouragement and exhortation. We, we will see in these some, some high-level theological doctrinal concepts, things like practical holiness. We'll see the idea of the ongoing intercession of Christ We'll consider the doctrine of propitiation. We'll just skim the surface, but we will consider it. And, and we'll also even skim the surface again of the doctrine of particular atonement, limited atonement that Christ died for a specific particular people. And, and with all those themes in mind, I also want to draw your attention to the balance and the precision with which John writes. I keep coming back to that. Because it's critically important because the Lord is a God of order and His Word is indeed precise. We live in an age where precision, to, to be dogmatically precise, is almost looked at negatively. But when we look at Scripture, we keep coming back to this fact that the Word of God is precise. It tells us exactly what the Lord intends for us to hear. And, and John is extremely precise in what he writes. So let's look at our text before we go any further. I want to go back to chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll read all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. If you would, and if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read the Word? This is God's Word. It's worthy of honor. It's holy. It is inerrant, and it is inspired. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit to the men who wrote these scriptures. So this is God speaking to us, His people. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
This is the Lord's word. It is to sanctify us, his people. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now join with me and let's bow before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our God, you are great, greatly to be praised. You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. You are worthy of every sacrifice, every offering that we can bring. You are the creator and sustainer of the earth, the sovereign ruler of all creation. All creation came about through the word of your power. You spoke all things into existence. Lord, as we consider your great might and power, as we consider the wisdom that you display in creation and in the plan of salvation, Lord, I pray that we would come before you with humble hearts. Lord, for how could we possibly have the right and the privilege to come boldly before your throne of grace? But we do, Lord. Not only do we have that right and privilege, but you command us to come boldly through the blood of Christ, our great high priest. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and to understand just a measure of our sinfulness against the backdrop of your holiness. Lord, I don't know that we could ever comprehend the infinite gap that exists between sinful man and holy God. But as we come to your word to consider your commands and your promises and this glorious work of Christ, pray, Lord, that you would give us just a glimpse of that great divide. Because in seeing the great divide, Lord, we see the greatness and the glory and the powerful mighty work of our Savior. Lord, again, I pray that it's with humble hearts that we come before you. I pray that it is with humble hearts that we hear and receive your word. I pray that you would sanctify us in the truth, for your word is the truth. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are ready and humbled and eager to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, I pray that this would not merely be a mental exercise where we gain knowledge and our lives are not changed, but I pray that we would be humbled and broken by the word. Pray that the truth would, by the powerful working of your spirit, that the truth would reveal to us our sin and that your spirit would break us and crush us and draw us unto faith and repentance. Lord, your word is written and given to us so that we would not sin. Yet your word tells us that we do sin. And how we thank you and how we praise you for the promise that we have an advocate, 
before you are father and judge, Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, it's my prayer that your spirit would move powerfully in us, through us, and among us today. Lord, I pray that you would make us look more like Christ and less like the world. Pray that there, if there are any among us who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That hard hearts would be not just softened, but that they would be removed and replaced with a new heart of flesh. Pray that you grant faith, repentance, and new life. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Lord, would you do that work in those who don't know you? And for those of us who are in Christ, would you sanctify us? Would you cause us to see his righteous standard and example, to hate our sin, to flee from all unrighteousness, to become more like Jesus? May we love you, O Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love one another as greater than ourselves. Lord, accomplish all that you intend for the glory of your name, for your eternal purposes, for the furtherance of the gospel, so that we would be a pure, spotless people for your possession to be the bride of Christ at the end of days. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if we go back to the beginning of this section, back to chapter 1, verse 5, you'll see that John kind of has hit us a little bit from both sides of the coin. He's told us that we must walk in the light as God himself is in the light. We must be holy as he is holy. He says that if we claim to walk in the light and yet walk in darkness, we are liars and we do not practice the truth. Then in verses 8 and 10, we we have this call to be holy as the Lord is holy. And then in verses 8 and 10, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So there's the call to be holy And then there's the reminder that we will always battle against sin. Then in verse 9, sandwiched in there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So you have this this balance, this both sides of the coin. And then as we come to chapter 2, John really pulls it all together perfectly, displaying the perfect, eternal wisdom of God. These are not competing ideas, holiness and indwelling sin, but this is the perfect outworking of salvation, that those who were dead in sin are alive in Christ. We still battle against sin, but we confess that sin, we repent of that sin, and we know as we do, as John writes in chapter 2, that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. The primary point of John here is to show us that we must not sin. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. So that's a primary point. But dear friends, how we would be remiss if we 
thought that this text only had one theme. Because we can't just look at this call not to sin and forget what it says in the rest of verse 1 and in verse 2. We have an advocate. Christ is our propitiation. He appeased and satisfied the wrath of God for us and for the whole world, for all who will come to him. John's aim is to give a perfect divinely wise balance to this calling to live a holy Christian life. We know that we'll battle sin. These truths are given so that we don't sin, but we know that we will. And when you do, dear saint, rejoice in the Lord that you have an advocate with the Father. You have a defender before the judge, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the proposition then in this text for us is this. Because you have Christ as your righteous intercessor and your sacrificial Savior, you ought to live fearlessly as you strive in His strength to be holy. Christ is your righteous intercessor. He is your sacrificial Savior. And therefore, as you walk in the strength that God supplies, striving to be holy, dear friend, live with fearless boldness because of that advocate. We must see the enormous call to Christ's likeness, but we must also hear the call of the Lord to rest in the accomplished, finished work of Christ. We've got to hear this as a call to action, because you don't understand the gravity of having an advocate if you don't understand your shortcomings. If you don't understand how far you fall short of keeping the law of the Lord, you don't understand the gloriously good news that you have an advocate before the Father. So we've got to consider sin. We've got to consider John's call that he's writing these things so that we don't sin. But dear saint, hear that call and rest in Christ. Breathe. Relax, rejoice, because you do not have any condemnation remaining. It was all placed upon Christ at the cross. And that's gloriously good news. So we want to consider the pursuit of Christ. That's really what this text is all about, pursuing Christ. I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. But we want to see the pursuit of Christ, the office of Christ, and the sacrifice. Of Christ. Let's begin in verse 1, first part of verse 1, really, and consider the pursuit of Christ. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you don't sin, so that you pursue Christ and that you put off the flesh. That is John's purpose, but let's just think about what he says here. I think it's so intriguing sometimes to Consider these little beginning phrases. We saw it a lot with with Peter, and we see it with John here too. He says, my little children. So two things to see there. One is John's authority. These are his children in the faith. But do you also see his tender love and affection? These are his children, his beloved children in the Lord. We must understand this as a term of endearment. Like when Paul wrote to Timothy or to Titus and he would say, my beloved, my true child, my son in the faith. 
Paul told the Corinthians, he said, You may have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Paul used that same language in Galatians and in Philemon, talking about how he was a father in the faith. John is about to give a clear and authoritative command, an unmistakable command to holiness. But he begins with personal love and affection. There is no arrogance in this spirit-inspired writing. You, you know, if, if this came from, from just an average Joe, if this was a letter from, from me to you, perhaps you could wonder, maybe is that a little bit of arrogance? But this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word is good and true. So this is tender love and affection. John knows that it's the Lord who is causing the gospel seed to grow in these, his children, in the faith. I think we need to see here and we need to understand the importance of Christian affection, especially as we address sin and hold one another accountable. And you have to understand, dear saints, that if your affection is going to be received as something true and genuine, if it's not going to be perceived as flattery, it must be something that you show in an ongoing basis. You can't be harsh and mean and, and unloving but then when you're ready to go confront somebody, suddenly you, you flip a switch and you become gentle and patient and loving. This love must mark all of our interactions together. We must be a people who is willing to show affection. It's a little bit awkward at times for men to show affection to one another. I understand that. I'm probably chief and foremost in that awkwardness. But dear brothers, we need to show this kind of affection to one another. We need to be willing to tell one another how we love, how we respect one another, to show this gentleness, this familial love of father to son or brother to brother. But there's not only love in John's statement here. Friends, do you see that there's also authority? My little children. You're the children, I'm the father, John says. So, so this is an authoritative statement. In our culture, in our age, we know that authority is disliked. It's not approved of. It's not seen as something that is good or, or right or welcome. But it is a biblical concept. It is a biblical thing for someone who is more mature in the faith to lovingly, protectively press on a younger, less mature believer. Sometimes that goes along with age, but sometimes there's a younger person who is more mature in the faith. Now, there needs to be love and respect and honor in that. But those who are more mature in the faith need to have a protective love and care for their fellow saints. Like a father loving and protecting his children, we should desire to protect one another from running off into sin. Our correction of one another must flow out of that heart. That heart of loving protection. That heart of not wanting to see a loved one walking on a dangerous, sinful path or a path of temptation, a path where they may run off the road, they may get off the straight and narrow path, we need to act as those guardrails to 
to love and to serve one another to ensure that we don't run off into sin. You know, one question we could ask of ourselves is, do you, do I, desire that kind of protective love? Do you, do I, desire that kind of shepherding from our leaders? Do, do we desire what is clearly shown in Scripture, or do we push back against it because of the hardness of our heart and our, and our pride? John says, my little children, you are my children in the faith. And so this is just the setup, my little children. It's an important setup, but it's only the setup to this great statement. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that, you'll recall, is that Greek phrase, hina, that word H-I-N-A, and it shows a singular, direct, express purpose. So John says, I'm writing all of these things, all that I've written before, and really even all that he's going to write after. He is writing for this purpose, that the saints do not sin. All of God's word is written so that we see the glory of God, and seeing the glory of God, the goodness of Christ, we turn away from sin and live in a way that honors him. That is all of God's word. It points us to the glory and the goodness of Christ so that we would put away sin and be more like him. You think about the verses preceding this, you can kind of get an idea of what John's getting at when he talks about sin. You go, you go back to verse 7 of chapter 1, but if we walk in the light, so, so it's this idea of a moving, a progression, and then he goes on to remind that you are going to sin if we say we've not sinned. We, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So what John has in mind here is progressive sanctification. He's not writing to lead the saints to a sinless perfection that we know is not attainable on this side of glory. He's writing to encourage them and to press them on so that they don't continue to practice sin. John's goal is that, that the Lord's word would cause the saints to become more like Jesus each day. But I think even more than that, what we must realize is the Lord's word must make us more like Christ in every season of life. Because it, it, it's hard to always become more like Christ today. Sometimes we need to, to, to kind of zoom out and have a bigger view in life and have the goal to be, to be more like Christ next year or next month than you are today. It's about planting seeds that will yield long-term fruit. You can't always become exactly like Christ. You can't always become mature in a day. You can grow. You should be growing each day. You shouldn't commit the same sins today that you committed yesterday. But dear friends, let us have this view where, where we are looking more long-term and we want every season of life, every period of life to conform us more and more to Christ. It means we learn the lessons God intends for us in every season, in every trial, in every difficulty, in every blessing, in every situation. We are striving to learn what the Lord intends for He is sovereign over, and over all things. We want to learn what He intends, therefore, so that we may become more like Christ. 
Righteous living is the necessary outworking of fellowship with God. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's exactly as John and the rest of Scripture describes the Christian life. It is a walk. It is a progression. It is not just a single moment in time, but a progressive becoming more and more like Christ day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. You'll experience victories as you walk with Christ, but you will also experience losses, defeats. You will sin, but you will make progress. So why do we have this calling? Why does the Lord say that he is writing these things so that we don't sin? It's because in Christ, we were once slaves to sin, but now in Christ, we're slaves to righteousness. That's what Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, 18, that we were once dead in sin and slaves to sin, but now we are alive in Christ and slaves of righteousness. It's one of the overarching truths of Scripture as it pertains to salvation. You were dead in sin, you were a slave to sin, but now you're alive in Christ and you're a slave to him, a slave to righteousness. Listen to on Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> it's Charles Spurgeon on verse 1 of chapter 2. He said, John here is anxious that these people would not sin. He knows that they do, because if they say that they're not, he, he said that they lie. So he's already established that. But Spurgeon continues, still the Christian's objective is sinless perfection. You know, that, that's not a, a common idea today. It's not a popular idea today that our goal is sinless perfection. But it is. John says, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. Spurgeon continued, though we'll never have this perfection until we get to heaven, that is all the better because we will always be pressing forward and never reckoning that we have attained it. Do you ever consider that, friends, that, that your sin in a way is a, a give, something given and used by God to cause you to always be pressing toward heaven? For if we attain perfection in this life, what need would we have for heaven? We, we would be perfect, we would be complete, we would be fulfilled. But as you sin, dear saint, that should take your gaze and, and lift it to glory. It should lift your gaze and, and your desire to heaven because you see that you still will battle flesh all the days of your life. But one day, the Lord will return or He will call you to glory and that battle will be over. Does your sin cut you so deeply in your heart because you're so devoted to your Savior that that sin causes you to long for heaven? You know, we, we understand, friends, that, that trial and, and suffering and tribulation makes us long for heaven when all things are made right. But do we understand that in a similar way that our own sin ought to make us have that same longing? Because your sin is what nailed and held Jesus to the cross. And you're going to battle that sin. 
You're going to fight against temptation. You're going to fight against sin and, and flesh that clings and holds so tightly and so closely. You're going to battle against that until you go to be with the Lord. So when you sin, dear friend, let that lift your gaze to heaven. To, to gaze upon, to look upon your Savior and to long to be with Him. To long to have eternal, full, complete victory over the flesh. Dear friend, it's coming, but we must press on. I hope you'll consider this question. If you think about that and you say, yes, that is where I am. Uh, when I sin, it makes me long for heaven. Well, let me ask this probing question, and this needs to be directed to each of our hearts. But if you do long for heaven when you sin, why do you still sin? Why do you still let the flesh master you? Dear friend, it's because you lack commitment, ultimately. And I say that as one who sins daily and understand that that means I lack the commitment to godliness that I ought to have as well. But if that is your desire, let's consider, why do I still sin? Why am I so weak when it comes to resisting temptation? Why do I so quickly let my thoughts turn to lust? Why am I so filled with greed and covetousness? Why am I so impatient? Why do I lack gentleness? Dear friend, it's because you love yourself in that moment more than you love Christ. That sin should lift your gaze to glory. That sin, rather than wanting to keep it and hold it as your pet, you should want to throw that as far as you can away from yourself. Lift your eyes to glory and run toward the Savior. We must long for heaven. And our lives should reflect that longing. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not, may not sin. If you long for heaven, your life will reflect it. And now that's heavy and that's weighty. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, by God's grace, considering the office and the sacrifice of Christ. Let's think about the office of Christ in the rest of verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The office of Christ. You have an advocate. That, that is his office. That is his work. The outline of this will kind of run over itself a little bit because we want to try to at least skim across so much of what we see here. But under this, the office of Christ, let's consider the office that he holds and his qualification for that office. So John says, we have an advocate. That is his title, an advocate. It's actually the Greek word parakletos, parakletos. It's what's often used to describe the work and the person and the nature of the Holy Spirit. But here it refers to Christ. One dictionary says that it suggests the capability for giving aid. It was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, a counsel for the defense, or as we see in this case, an advocate. 
This is what is being described of Christ. He is giving us aid. He is defending us. He is advocating for us. He is pleading for us before the judge of all things. Dear friends, that ought to give you great, great hope. Because whatever Jesus pleads is good. Whatever Jesus pleads is right and just and glorifying to the Lord. And whatever he pleads, dear friend, will come to pass. And if you are in him, he pleads his righteousness on and for your account. Now, one word before pressing a little bit fur further in this, uh, we ought to consider the call to follow Christ's example. Right? We are to be like Christ, and Christ is an advocate for those who are in Him. How we ought to be advocates and defenders of one another. It's easy to become the biggest critic for those to whom you're closest. But to follow Christ's example is to be a defender. It's to be an advocate. It's to plead the blood of Christ on their behalf. We ought to be like Christ. On what basis does Jesus plead our case before the judge? It's on the basis of his blood, his sacrifice, his righteousness. John Calvin wrote that Christ appears before God for this end, that he may exercise towards us the power and efficacy of his sacrifice. Jesus stands to plead the power and the effectiveness of his own sacrifice. You think of it, think about a, a human attorney. You know, that's effectively what we're talking about Jesus as, a, a, a lawyer, a, an attorney, a defender. When, when a, an attorney goes to court, they either defend the, the action of the person or they seek to prove their innocence in a matter. Jesus does stand by our side as an attorney, but he doesn't defend our actions. He doesn't seek to prove our innocence. He proves his own worth. He advocates because of his own blood. He declares his own righteousness. He doesn't say, oh, well, this person has accomplished enough good. Father, let them into heaven. No, he says, this person was a wretch, but I paid for their sin at the cross. They're covered in my blood. My righteousness is credited to their account. And dear Father, they are mine. Let them in on my account. So again, we must strive to be like Christ in this. Defending and loving one another, but never overlooking sin. Because that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't overlook your sin. He pleads his own blood as its covering. He doesn't overlook your unrighteousness. He cleanses your unrighteousness by replacing it with his own. Dear friend, what an advocate. The comfort and encouragement that this should bring is really difficult to put into words. Just consider the wretchedness of your sin. The ugliness of your sin before a perfectly holy God. But you have the eternally lovely, righteous, holy Son of God proclaiming his righteousness for you before the judge. Again, saints, let us remember 
that what Jesus pleads is always good, and it always comes to pass. When he pleads on your behalf, you will be delivered from the condemnation of your sin. How is Jesus qualified for this office? John says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. He ably, savingly defends you because he is righteous. Not because of anything you've done to merit forgiveness. Not because any good deeds that you have completed not because of anything that you could ever do for all eternity. He is able to be your advocate because He is the righteous one. Because He stands before the Father as sinless and perfect and holy. He is your great high priest. Turn with me, if you want to read along, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and following. This is ultimately the office of Christ, the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Dear friends, there's so much that we can draw out of that as application and exhortation as we consider the office of Christ as our great high priest. Now, you may be familiar with this passage and this concept. The high priest in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself, as we read earlier, and on behalf of all the people. That work, friends, was a foreshadowing of Christ. Because the high priest had to go year after year after year after year. But Christ died for sins once and for all. His work was finished at the cross He finished his work, and he went and he sat down at the right hand of God. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does the author of Hebrews say? He says then, let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling to this confession that Jesus is our advocate. Let us rest fully in his work. Strive and toil and labor to be more like Christ. But at the end of the day, dear saint, rest in his work. Rest in his righteousness. Rest in the fact that he hung on the cross until he could cry out, It is finished. Because the work of redemption was complete. We also have an example in our great high priest. What is verse 15? Hebrews 4 verse 15 We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. Dear friends, that is an example to follow. Tempted in all things, yet he was without sin. Now, Christ, of course, could not sin. Because of the holy nature of God that remained in him, he could not sin. But he was tempted in all things, and he resisted temptation. 
and he stood upon what was good and true and right, and he resisted temptation through repeating and recounting the word of God. Dear friend, look to and follow the example of your great high priest. Thirdly, in way of application here, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear friend, because he is your high priest, come boldly to the throne of God's grace in your time of need. Come boldly and ask God for mercy, new mercy every morning. Ask for that powerful, sufficient grace to help you in all of your weaknesses. Do that because you have a great high priest. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. He knows the frailties of your flesh. Go to the throne of grace. Plead by his blood and in his name for the Lord to give you help. Understand that he's not far off as so many rulers and nobles would like to make themselves so distinct from the people they rule, but rather Christ brings us near. He reconciles us to himself. This ought to be part of the message that we proclaim to the world. When we proclaim Christ, we do show this great holiness of God and this great sin of man, but then show how in Christ we're reconciled. We're brought near by the blood of the cross. Preach this news because you know it, because it flows out of your heart and into your life. So this is the office of Christ. He is our advocate because he is the righteous one. Now let's press on into verse 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and consider just briefly, we could spend much more time on, on the doctrines here and, and maybe in the future one day we will. But let's just briefly think about the sacrifice of Christ. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now here's the sacrifice in verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So two doctrines to consider here. The doctrine of propitiation. Again, we're just going to skim the surface. And then the sometimes controversial doctrine of limited or particular atonement. That Christ died for a specific people. And you say, well, it just said he died for the sins of the whole world. Hang on to that thought. We'll get there in a moment. So Jesus is our advocate because he's righteous. And because he gave himself as the propitiation for our sins. And I'll be honest, that word propitiation is, is kind of challenging to define in, in short form. But, but I think MacArthur is spot on when he talks about this being a Bible word. It's a word that we can't really understand fully outside of the scriptures. It's a word that gets its fullest definition in the work we see from Christ in God's word. The word means to appease and to satisfy. And MacArthur gave this definition. He said, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice, and thus it appeased his holy wrath against believers' sins. Satisfied justice and appeased wrath. That's why you can't see this word outside of Scripture because there's no clearer picture of satisfying the demands of justice and appeasing wrath for sin. 
In these times, this word was used of pagan gods who would become angry and enraged. Now, these are not real gods, of course, but the people would think that they were angry and they would do something to appease them. They would offer them a propitiation. Those gods, being pagan, false gods, when, when things got bad, the people would think that that god was angry again. That's not propitiation because it fully appeases. It fully satisfies the wrath of God. That's why Christ was the perfect sacrifice because he eternally satisfied the demands of God's justice. Simon Kistemacher writes of this, that God initiated his love to a sinful world by giving his son to cover sin and remove guilt. And we could stop there, and that'd be a great quote, but he continues. He said, this gift resulted in the death of Jesus on the cross. The removal of sin and the covering, the covering of sin and the removal of guilt required the Son of God to die on the cross. That's what propitiation means. That is what propitiation is, that the wrath was completely taken. It was completely removed. All of God's demands are satisfied in Christ. Now, I'm going to ask the question, and again, I I want to be clear, we're not going to cover this in all the depth that we could. Maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll do this. But for whose sin did Christ die? What does John say? He says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so you might be thinking that this is a universalist salvation. But John's audience, John himself was a Jew. He was writing to probably a lot of converted Jews, those Jews who had converted to Christianity. And he's telling them that God didn't just die. Christ didn't just die for your sins. He died for the sins both of Jew and Gentile so that the Gentiles could be grafted into the covenant so that they could become part of the family of God. So it's not just for your sins, but for the sins of all who would come to Christ in repentance. John is not saying that all will be saved, because Christ was a propitiation for sin only for those who were among God's elect, only for those who would come to Christ in faith and repentance. Dear friends, we know that there will be those on the last day who are cast out. Those who will come to judgment and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. How can he say that if he died for their sins? How can he say that if he was their propitiation? The answer is that Jesus died for a limited particular people. Those who are among God's elect. Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world. Christ is infinitely more valuable than any soul ever created. So understand that his death is sufficient for any limitless number of people who would come to him. But it's effective only for those on whom God has placed his eternal, effectual, salvation-calling love. Christ is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He laid down his life at the cross to bear the punishment for our sins so that you might come to him in faith and repentance. He died to bear the wrath for the elect. And so the question to ask, and we'll move towards closing with this, the question to ask is how do you know if you're among the elect? 
how do you know if Christ propitiated, gave himself as a propitiation for your sins? Jesus in John 6, 37 said, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Anyone who comes, he will not cast out. He will receive you to himself and he will lose none of whom the Father has given him. So if you would have Christ, dear friend, if you would come to him in unreserved faith and repentance, surely then he will have you. Surely he will wash you and save you and keep you. That's the great hope that we hold. That is how you know if you're among God's elect or not. Would you have Christ? Would you come to him in faith and repentance? Because if you do, his work is sufficient. If you would have him, though, dear friend, you must pursue him. Because, again, that's what John says. These things I've written, my little children, so that you may not sin. If you would have him, it means your life is transformed. You come in faith and repentance and you turn from your sin and you walk in newness of life. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. As you pursue this righteousness, as you strive to walk with Christ, dear friend, let me promise you, you will sin. You will fall short, and that's not an excuse to sin. We, we don't sin so that his grace may abound, as Paul told the Romans. But you will, because you're still battling flesh. And Dear friend, when you sin, know that you have an advocate. You have a defender. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus, as your advocate, dear friend, is better than any righteousness that you could ever amass to yourself. Jesus, as your advocate, is better than any good works that you could ever complete. His merit is infinitely greater than anything you could ever merit. So, dear friend, come to him. He is the wrath appeasing sacrifice. Come to him. Come to Christ in faith and repentance to give all of your life. Come to him for eternal life. Do it by the power of the Spirit. Do it in submission to the truth. And do it, beloved, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good and gracious and glorious. We are so thankful that we have an advocate.